It is the parable of the what in your Bible will say the prodigal son in Luke 15. So again, I'm not going to try to read the whole text. Most of us are already familiar with this passage. So what I'd like to do this morning, though, is to begin by sharing a reading uh, from, it was written by a woman named Leona Bergstrom, and it was titled, The Day Things Began to Change. Take it, I told him. Take the money, the caravan, the jewels, the deed to the property, and whatever else you think is yours, take it and go. I've had enough of this arrogant attitude, late night carousing, and, and obvious snubbing of our faith and our heritage. He wanted to leave, so leave he did. My heart and my soul collapsed under the weight of guilt, shame, anger, frustration, and surprisingly, profound love. Memories flooded my mind, images of a sweet little boy singing songs of praise to Jehovah, a young man reciting scriptures, a strong lad working in the field. And as I watched him walk away that day, I didn't know if I'd see him again. Falling to my knees and weeping uncontrollably, I began my own journey. My son was called a prodigal because he squandered his resources. Likewise, I am a prodigal. I'm a prodigal if I was to waste the life-changing lesson being taught to me by this grueling experience. What happened between the day that my son left and the day that, my, that, that, that we celebrated his return? Well, that's a tale. It's a tale of deep pain and sorrow. And that's my story. It's how I changed during that long, troubling process. First, I was filled with anger when my son first turned his back on his family and our faith. How could this youngster whom I fed, clothed, sheltered, educated, dare to become such a turncoat? How could he do this to me, to his mother? Our well-respected family, his village, his synagogue. A meddling neighbor reported seeing my son stumbling down the street in a nearby village with a group of loud-mouthed, ill-behaved companions at his side. My soul was sick with embarrassment, with shame. What would others think about our spiritual and parental shortcomings? We would be at the top of the community prayer list and gossip sheet. Eventually, the perceptions of others lessened in importance, and I was besieged with fear. What if my son makes terrible, irreversible choices? He could be defeated by a hostile and an evil world. He could die out there. Then guilt began pummeling my soul. Had I done something to cause this? Was I too rigid, too judgmental, too unbending, too busy? Did my behavior cause him to leave? Had I driven him away from us, from God? Questions 
doubts, worry haunted my sleepless nights. I wondered, I wondered if I would even want my son to come home. Then I began to understand. Two things became clear. One, I wasn't going to fix this. That was God's work. Second, if my son returned home, a changed father should greet him. Not a bitter, self-righteous man that he had left behind, but a different man. And that began my transformative journey, asking God to search my heart and to repent of my own selfishness, my pride, my judgmental attitudes. Yes, I had set unrealistic expectations for my son. I had been impatient. I pursued forgiveness, recognizing I wronged my son on many occasions. I wrote unsent letters filled with confession and apologies, sometimes talked to an empty chair as if he were there. I asked my son to forgive me, and I also forgave him. Constant prayer became my sustenance, pleading with God to rescue my son. I spoke of times God had turned hardened backs to him. I surrendered. Well, I surrendered control. I asked for mercy, for restoration. As a part of my healing, I started to become thankful for what I did have. Obsessed with the absence of my wayward child, I'd failed to celebrate others that I loved. I became deeply aware that having a relationship with my son, well, that was more important than my material possessions, right behavior, even status in the community. My greatest desire was simply to hear his voice and, and to listen to his voice and to listen more. To know that his dad would simply Walk beside him no matter what. And the ultimate step in my transformative journey was experiencing and dispensing grace. I can't do anything to make God love me more because his love is perfect. And thankfully, nothing that I do makes him love me less. How could I not extend such extraordinary love and acceptance to my very own son. And I'll never forget that evening. Gazing at the sunset, I saw my son hobbling and coming in our direction. And like never before, my heart was filled with unimaginable love and compassion. And I embraced him. You know, before my son walked away, I must have, I must have known, I must have known 
that there were people in all sorts of pain around me, but I never considered why it should bother me. My heartbreak softened something inside of me to feel sympathy and empathy like I had not before, to begin to trust love's work is greater than any other. And at the title and at the top of the paragraph in most of your Bibles, like mine, Luke 15, verse 11, it likely says, the prodigal son, but interestingly, that term is never even used in Jesus' parable. Prodigal meaning extravagant or lavish. The truth of this text tells a story of a prodigal father. Giving on a lavish scale. See, most of us have heard this parable, and, and most of us hear the focus of a son who squandered an inheritance or perhaps an older brother who begrudgingly watched the reconciliation of his brother to his father. And yet Jesus begins to tell this story with four words. There was a man. I've titled the message this morning with that title. Because I believe that Jesus' focus was for us to see what God cared about. There was a man. Jesus is telling the story to capture our imagination about an actual person, his father, who is, by the way, our father. A real father, but not like one we've ever known or seen. He's trying to capture our imagination that perhaps there's a father who's captured by something other than performance. He's captured by love. And this is all in response to the Pharisees grumbling when they said, Jesus eats with sinners and he receives tax collectors. And Jesus' response was not even to talk about that. He just said, let me tell you about a man. There was a man. I want to tell you the truth about a father who trusts his love is greater and broader than any of man's weaknesses or sin. Beloved, the good news that we proclaim this morning is that in a world filled with an imagination about all the brokenness and failure of mankind, distortion, distance, disconnection of every kind. There is a man who trusts his love is enough to redeem, to restore, and to repair the most broken into a place of sonship with him. That is actually good news. There is a man. Jesus starts telling this story. It's a tragic telling of a man with two sons. One who, according to ancient traditions, now some of us read this story and say, how could this ever happen? Actually, according to ancient Near Eastern tradition, uh, it is true that they could actually ask for their inheritance before their father's death. It was permissible and possible by the letter of the law, but make no mistake, 
horribly painful, brutal in practice. Because why? This son walked up to his father and was saying, I want to live as though you were dead. So the man divides his estate with his sons. The younger son goes to a distant land. And, and why is that? Because he's trying to make something very clear. I'm living as though my father is dead. I want to disconnect from my father and all that he represents. And in his disconnection, he, he makes his life about the smallest letter of the alphabet. I. It's all about what I want. And very quickly, he begins to feel deep dissatisfaction. And something hits him. And, and I love the way the voice translation translates this. It says, in reflection, he's remembering. What am I doing here? Sitting in a pig pen. And he returns to his father. He has a speech ready. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I forfeit any right to be treated as a son. And the father, seemingly unwavered by his son's groveling, embraces him with what's actually in him, not what's in the son. Do you get this? This, this, this is gospel preaching that needs to be proclaimed over and over. The father embraces the son because of what's in the father. Right? Compassion and mercy. The Lord, the Lord, gracious, compassionate, uh, abundant in loving kindness, forgiving transgression and iniquity and sin. The father proclaims what's obvious to him. Not that his son is, you know, not, not, not worthy of being uh, called his son. And not that his son was no longer treating him as a dead man, but that his son was dead and is now alive. He's lost and found. Now watch this. The father proclaims that his son was dead to love, but the father never was. Please don't miss this. There's a man who lives alive to love. Now, then there's the older brother. You've got this older brother who's um, existing in this loveless sort of relationship. And, and here's what it could be reduced down to is that, that for him, his relationship with his dad is about duty and obligation. I need to do the right things in order to get what I need. Oh, wait, that sounds strangely religious. He gave his tithe. He volunteered. He witnessed on Saturdays. He saw that what he received from his father was something that he had deserved because of what he had earned. His relationship was in duty obligation. It was really a contract. Oh, wait a minute. The older brother is trusting in himself 
and he's not surrendered to the love of the Father, oh, wait, just the same problem with a different name on it, isn't it? And while he never left town, his heart is in a distant country. As soon as he hears there's a party for his brother, he's filled with anger, resentment. That son, no, his kid doesn't deserve that kind of treatment, meaning that he deserved it. Oh, yeah. He's revealing that he believed by his duty and obligation and loyalty what he got, he had earned. He's disconnected from love. He's in a distant land because he's trusting his own work, not the Father's heart. Even after his father comes to him, he says, affirms him, all that I have is yours. But see, when you, when you live disconnected from love, there's other things that are controlling your heart. Oh, wait, one like fear. Will I have enough? Will I have enough? Have I done enough to get enough? It's always about what you're lacking or failing to do to get what you need. I dare say I can even give you religious books that are written with this tenor. And, and interestingly, he's in a distant land. He's disconnected from the love of the Father. And, oh, wait, he's dissatisfied because he doesn't want to join the Father's celebration because that would mean his definition of life, something that he earned, is not true. Both sons are in a distant land. Trusting in some other kind of arrangement other than love. Oh, that contractual thing. Give me what I deserve. But the father, now I, I enjoyed that story I read earlier, by the way. It was just meant to sort of invite us into the story in a fresh way. But here's the point that Jesus tells of this man. There was a man. There was a man who had chosen to trust covenant love. Above all things, the father calls both of these boys, his older son, his younger son. He said, my son. You can look at it in your Bible. It's there. You want to see something fascinating? Oh. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it. It's really cool. Ready? Two different verses. Luke records Jesus describing them with two different words for son. In Luke... 248, you don't need to turn there, but we, we hear Mary and Joseph are out there. They're trying to find their boy, remember? Where is he? They find him in the temple, and Mary turns and says, son, why have you treated us this way? And the word used there for son is technon. You don't, Greek word, unless your name is Dorothy, can you tell me how to say that correctly? Uh, I know you're on the call, Dorothy, but what that means is it's a young man Who's not fully matured. That word, by the way, is the word used to, Jesus, to describe Jesus as a son until he's 30. Not fully mature. Right? The other word, Luke 9, 40, 35, and it also shows up at his baptism. Um, 
But on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's this, wow, you know, we looked at this several weeks ago on the Transfiguration Sunday, and, and, and the Father says, this is my son, Eos, the son that is fully mature, that bears the likeness of his Father, okay? Are you ready for some fun thoughts? Ready, here we go. Guess which words that Luke uses to record Jesus describing the older and the younger brother. To the older brother, the father says, my son, my technon, not fully mature son, all I have is yours. To the younger one who had squandered his inheritance but come in repentance and surrendering control comes and receives the father's embrace. The father says, my eos, the one that's mature, that bears the likeness of his father. You would think he would have said it the other way around. Guys, I, I agree with this statement. You know, age doesn't necessarily fill you with maturity, does it? It'll give you wrinkles. <laughs> maturity is choosing to surrender. Jesus is pulling the veil back on our religious pride. Following him isn't about how well we think we've done our part. I've worked for you all these years, duty and obligation. That's actually been my confession in private. That's actually been mine. Oh, Technon, not fully mature, Ben. It was never about what you accomplished. It's always been about what I accomplished. It's always been about my love. This is what we have to let settle in us deeply. The greatest thing that God gets out of our life is not the stuff we do, but who we actually become. Are we going to surrender to his love? That, wait a minute, it's actually all about him? Yes. What does that look like? It means laying down our sense of control. How is this relationship? You know, I'm, I'm going to make this thing work. I'm going to make God work for me. Good luck with that. This is about surrendering to the fact that he's chosen to love me with measureless love. His covenant love that's abundant and that's enough. And by the way, he's always known that it's enough. He's trusted in his love. Will you and will I? One person said it this way. You know, some of us run from home, squandering resource, inheritance. Others, like the older son, run away from home in silent resentment, sorrow, grief, loss. Some are in a distant country while in fear and shame and embarrassment from others. Some travel to a distant country by way of addictions and self-destructive behaviors. Others' journey, it takes them into guilt and self-condemnation, even uh, self-hatred that ends in a very distant country. 
However we get to that distant country, it's a place in which we are the ones who are lost and hungry. Regardless of how we got there, the things that we've done to get there, the amount of time that we've spent there, we can always come home. Now, if we go home, we have to face the villagers. You know, the voices inside of us. You know, a lot of times we've, we've, we've often framed these words like Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he says, the, the, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And there's, so there's this voice, you know, there's voices of the gods of this age, and we think that it's some kind of ugly thing out there. Can I just give this in, to us in right terms? That accusation is stuff that actually happens in our own head. It, 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 it sounds something like this. Watch. The, this is the way this, this individual worded it. Those voices inside of us that say, you, you really don't think you can go home, do you? That's the voice of, the, of accusation that blinds us to belief. They won't take you back. Look what you're covered in. You're not worthy. You never were. So the only way home, it seems, is to deny that we're the Father's children. Something the Father, by the way, has never denied. I'll get up. I'll, 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 I'll go to him. I've sinned against you. I, I, I'm not worthy to be called your son. The Father, though, listen to me. This preaches every day. The Father knows that love is the way home which is why the father runs to meet the son. He's there to protect him from the villagers, to see him safely home. He's the one who says, your mind is going to be renewed, not by how hard you try, but by how much you agree with how I feel about you, what I've chosen to believe in. That's where your mind's going to be renewed. So the father stands between the son and the villagers, the best robe, the sandals, the ring, the banquet, over and over. He recommits himself to the runaway, come home. There was a man. That father is our father. A father who always, has always, and still always trusts his love for his children. More than he does the words, decisions, and actions of his children. And that, beloved, is really good news. Amen? So I want to invite us this morning to respond to the story of the prodigal in a fresh way. It ain't, I threw out ain't, it isn't, sorry, it is not about you assessing how much prodigalness you got in you. It's about realizing how lavish his love is. He's a prodigal father who trusts his love for you and for me as enough. That's why he was able to say on the cross, it is completed. It was actually one word, done. That's why we come to this table, not because it's some ritual that we're making him happy. It's because we're proclaiming over our mind, over the DNA of our body, over our heart, 
Your love is enough. Lord, as we come to this table, I just think about this thing. And, Lord, it's become words for me that I thank you that the cross isn't just a picture that we have on our not just a picture that we put on the wall. It's not a pretty piece of jewelry. It's not a sign on a building. But your very invitation, self-giving, self-emptying love and forgiveness. That, Lord, is that we say yes to what you have chosen to believe. That I, I want to proclaim today, God, over my body, over my DNA, over my mind and all the thoughts of my mind, over my life, that it literally reshapes who I am, that it would refound me in my being, that it would refound my family, that it would refound the community around us. Lord, give us a fresh imagination today. It's your kingdom. That's what it looks like. It looks like you, Jesus. So we say no to despair, hopelessness, fear, and we surrender again now, Lord, to this beauty and wonder. Lord, in confessing what the church has proclaimed for generations, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. So I want to invite you guys, if you would, would you stand with me? Let's uh, let's let's pray this prayer together, and then we're just going to come to communion. If you're on the call, if you've got something there to share in communion with us, if we want to encourage you to grab a hold of that. I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. God of patient love, you await the return of the wayward and the wandering, and eagerly embrace them in pardon. You've closed us with the glory of Christ and restored our inheritance. Give us generous hearts to welcome all who seek a place at the table of your unconditional love. We ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.